Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. All right. Well, so before we get started, I want to give everybody a little bit of disclaimer. Tonight's message might be a little bit intense, but you are all mature believers. I think you'll be able to handle it. So you know. All right. The title of tonight's message is called The Lion and the Martyr. Okay. So, point number one. The power of Christian martyrdom has been a staple of the Christian faith for thousands of years. Ignatius, the bishop of the Church of Antioch, embraced this as a true calling of his faith. So the question to ask is, what is martyrdom? And how did Ignatius, a disciple of Christ, define it? And what did martyrdom ultimately do to the Roman Empire? So, the Roman Empire, how it looked like in 107 A.D., In 107 AD, the Roman Emperor Trajan opens the Colosseum for 123 days straight. The Colosseum is open to a wide array of debauchery, combat of two men, and showcases the world has never seen. The Emperor expands the empire up to 2 million miles. So if you can put up picture one, please. Okay. So as you can see with the picture, this is the height of the Roman Empire from the Emperor Trajan. This is 107 AD, all the way to Britain, and this is pretty much the entire Mediterranean. This is the emperor that this is the empire the emperor is looking at, and this is what Ignatius, the, the bishop of Antioch, has to deal with. Okay. <clears throat> now, after expanding the uh, empire up to two million miles, he conquers the ancient kingdom of Dacia which is now modern-day Romania. So if you know your map, right here, there's Crete, there's Greece, and right over here is Italy. Right on top of that is Dacia, which would be modern-day Romania. So let's say northern Europe, that's what he conquers. Now, through the history of the Colosseum, the formula for empire was like this. They would go to and conquer and plunder a land, and then they would bring all the spoils of war to Rome. They would use the funds to build infrastructure, infrastructure. Then they would inaugurate the victory with X amount of days of the Colosseum. So that's how it worked. So you were an empire, you conquered, and what'd you do? All right, Roman games. That's how they did it. So now what did Christianity look like in the empire around this time in 107 AD? A lot of churches that Paul established still existed at this time period. Okay, actually, can we put map two, please? Now, if you look at the map here, okay, as you can see, there are a lot of dots. Don't worry about the black dots. Don't worry about the purple dots. But right in the middle, the aqua blue dot is what we're looking for. This is the empire right before 200 CE, so around the time we're talking about. And as you can see, if you're able to see this, there's blue dots all over around the Mediterranean. Okay, that's hundreds of churches already. So that's what we're talking about. So again... Don't worry about the black dots or the purple dots, the bluish-ish, aqua-ish 
blue. That's what we're looking at. Now, a number of the Christian communities are growing. And what started out as a small following based out of Jerusalem, which is where our faith started, has spread across the entire empire. Now, point number four, Romans' view of Christianity. Well, right off the bat, the Romans would have very harsh comments. When they see their people eaten by lions, somebody said, they will turn to our gods. The Romans see Christians as a threat because of its promise to undermine Roman conceptions of how power and authority were supposed to be. Rome was noticing the tiny new spiritual movement. They began to see Christians as troublemakers. Why? When groups start to assemble together, they grow and they spread new ideas. And in this case, it's the idea. And Rome doesn't want new ideas. They want no one to challenge the power structure. To the Romans, they believe that Christians have strange rituals akin to a human sacrifice. They eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus Christ, their, their follower, their master. Obviously, this is not only a misunderstanding of communion, it also serves as good propaganda for the Romans to denounce Christianity. You see those Christians over there? They are known for drinking the blood and eating the flesh of their master. That's how the Romans saw us. That's what they spread. And according to Rome, the Christians have the audacity to say that this, this same Jesus is the Son of God. This challenges Rome. The Roman religion, just like the Greek religion, was based around a pantheon of gods. The Romans worshipped many gods and were quite happy doing so. They had a god for everything such as gods of trade, war, nature, etc. The Roman gods were interwoven, with, interwoven to everyday life. If you had a group within a society that was acting out and disrupting the proper rituals, proper forms of behavior, and honoring the gods, then they were considered by the Roman government as a threat to the literal well-being of the empire. Now, this is nothing new to us. We see a similar exchange happen in Acts chapter 19, verses 24 to 29. For a certain man named Damaris, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at, the, at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded in turning away many people, saying that there are not, not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of failing into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion, and rushed into the theater with one accord. Having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Now, the emperor himself demands homage, and in some cases, worship. The Christians refuse, and this, and this is considered treason. However, Emperor Trajan didn't want to round up the Christians because that would bring even more attention to their movement. He demanded that they make a profession of their faith of loyalty to Rome and to the Roman gods. So his attitude toward the Christians would be considered like very nonchalant. 
but would take action in certain cases. If they showed disrespect to the emperor and to the Roman state, they would be arrested, tortured, and executed. But if they keep to themselves, the emperor would leave them alone. They should be left alone. Point number five, who is Ignatius? Ignatius lives 80 years after Christ. When reading his letters, he is referred to as the image bearer. This would imply that he is an imitator of Christ in every sense of the word. His letters also indicate that, they, that he understands the Trinity and his adherence to all the hallmarks of our faith. He understands and embodies persecution. He wishes to imitate Christ as well as Paul. So that's his intent. That's his end game. That's his motive. He is the bishop of the church in Antioch. It is here where we get the term Christian. Prior to the term Christian, we were known as the followers of the way. In Acts chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to find Saul. When he found him, he brought him up to Antioch. Then for a whole year they met together with the church and taught a large crowd. It was in Antioch that the disciples were given the name Christians. So that's the quote-unquote claim to fame of Antioch. Besides it being an ancient city in an antiquity and being an ancient Christian city, that's where we get the term Christians from. Now, as this new radical religion was spreading, it reaches the capital in Rome, which is Rome. The population of Christians around the time is estimated to be in the thousands. The population consists of foreigners and people of lower class who do not advertise their presence. Now, because of their, I guess, quote-unquote trouble, the emperors, trades, and men are high alert to spot Christians. Now, remember, the emperor had a very nonchalant attitude to the Christians, but that's about to change, as you will, we'll soon see. Point number six, the catastrophe at, in Antioch. As history would have it, natural disasters happen all the time. And a catastrophic event brings Christians unwanted attention. A massive earthquake hits Antioch. To the Romans, this is seen as a people who are not behaving properly towards the Roman gods and cause a chaos. In other words, it's the Christians' fault. When something of this magnitude happens, the Romans choose as a scapegoat this troublesome and revolutionary act, this revolutionary sect, and especially target are the leaders like Ignatius. Point number seven, never let a good crisis go to waste. Ignatius of Antioch is clearly the target of Rome's anger. He is arrested, brought to Rome to be executed. If these people show disrespect to the emperor and the Roman state, this was considered sedition and will have them executed right off the bat. Public executions were conducted to teach a lesson to those who witnessed them. The fate of Christians who persisted in their belief were targeted and charged with capital offense and the death penalty. But, point number eight, Ignatius accepts his fate. Ignatius' situation is no ordinary execution. He is convinced that he will die violently. And this is okay with him because he wants to follow the model of Christ and he is willing to die as a martyr, to die just like Jesus. I'm reminded by 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. 
And then again in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, on his way to Rome, Ignatius writes seven letters. All primary sources, we have them all documented. It is here where we find what he believes about the faith. Now, we will probably review them as, uh, we will review them as, I go, as we go. So how does Ignatius get caught up with the Roman government? The earthquake that happened was the perfect opportunity to capture Christians. But there seems to be a plan in play prior to the earthquake, or just plans to round up Christians. An interesting discussion happens between Emperor Trajan and a man called Pliny, which was one of his governors. Pliny writes to Trajan and asks what to do with these Christians. Now Trajan kind of uh, changes his tune a little bit. Don't go seeking them out, but if they do come to your attention, make them curse the name of Christ. And if they won't do that, then you will know that they are Christians. Then you should put them to death. So he went from nonchalant, like if they're long not causing trouble, to find them and round them up, and let's use a scapegoat as, a, as the earthquake to do it. Now Ignatius is one of the first to be asked this question. Will you bow down to the gods of Rome, or will you stand firm with the convictions you have? Not surprisingly, Ignatius says no. He will not submit to the gods of Rome. Historians have evidence of early Christian trial documents that Roman administrators gave Christians an opportunity to recant their faith. If they honor the Roman Empire, they will be set free. Ignatius refuses to do this, knowing it will lead to his violent death in the Colosseum of Rome. Ignatius' fate is sealed, placed in chains, and escorted by guards. Ignatius begins his journey. He must now be forced to travel 1,800 miles to Rome, where he will be food for the beasts. Now, point number nine. Let's review the Colosseum games. What is expected of Ignatius? What is he going to see when he finally gets to Rome? And in that case, another question to ask is, why wasn't he executed in Antioch? Why be driven 1,800 miles to Rome? It gave the Romans an opportunity to seize on a senior official of the Christian church. The Roman Empire is all about showcasing your victories and spoils in the most debaucherous and disturbing ways possible. Trajan intends to put on the most magnificent set of games that have ever been held in the Colosseum. He intends to outdo all of his predecessors. His games will include 107 days as opposed to 100 days from the Emperor Titus, combat of over 9,000 gladiators, run-of-the-mill entertainment such as the execution of rebels and Christians, which I find kind of funny they put rebels and Christians in the same category, but hey. Point number 10, all roads lead to Rome. To reach Rome, the captives must march 20 miles a day, at least. That's almost, if you think about it, on a light day, the Roman soldiers had to wear their armor and at least march 10 miles. That was the minimum. On a, on a bigger day, they had to march 20 miles. So essentially, if you're marching 20 miles a day, you're pretty much doing what the Roman army's doing. Now, but to do this, they're using Rome's incredible, incredible system of roads. 
This is called the, the, the Via Engantia. Now, the Roman roads is similar to Paul. Paul uses similar roads when he spreads Christianity. These roads connect the, the Eastern Empire to the Western Empire, making traveling more doable. So I'm not sure what the, uh, the uh, title, what roads Paul used, but that was one of his hallmarks. He was able to spread the gospel by using roads. In this case, these Roman roads are the ones that, that, that connect the Eastern Empire to the West. I would go on and say that probably either the same roads are similar, but I'm not sure. But the same thing happened. Now, when the roads are uh, connected to the Eastern and Western Empire, it makes traveling more doable. So a few things happen when he's on the road. Ignatius is able to write his letters on these roads to various Christian churches along the way. These roads is one of 372 major roads in the empire. It's a, a combined network totaling 250,000 miles. So we talked about, what was it, 20 million square feet? 250 miles of roads connected everything. It connects 40 provinces outside of the empire to Rome. And this is where we get the term, all roads, all roads lead to Rome. So if you heard that, this is where it came from. Now, the roads are the nervous system of the empire. It allows everything from legions and the traders, politicians to travel to the four corners of the empire. It brings the ideas from far off lands back to Rome. The roads were also one of two ways that destroyed the empire from within. The connection of the empire spread the things against the empire. The second way we'll discuss later. But keep that in mind, that when you have such a connectivity, you can't control everything that goes through. The good things as well as the bad things are traveling. And as we know by Paul's letters, that's exactly what happened. Helping Ignatius to, to write these letters was a scribe named Burris. The church provided him this scribe to take dictation and write what Ignatius said. So you're traveling, you have somebody writing everything you, you have, and you can disassemble, or you can disseminate all the letters wherever they need to go. Point number 11, Ignatius' writings on the road to Rome. Ignatius describes his journey on the road amongst the Roman soldiers. From Syria to Rome, I am fighting with wild beasts on land and sea. By night and day, chained amidst ten leopards, that is a company of soldiers, who get worse when they are well treated. Yet because of their mistreatment, I am becoming more of a disciple. And this is Ignatius' letter to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He describes the soldiers as wild beasts. This is a man asking God to give him strength. This mistreatment is a precursor of what's to come at the Colosseum. And he asked the Lord to perfect his faith through the mistreatment. As he travels, he tells a local Christian to spread this message. Christians call each other brothers and sisters, as we well know. And by doing this, they're building for themselves a new society, one that stands apart from the Roman oppression. This feels similar to what we do as Christians today. We live in a society where the outside world can be good or not, bleak, dark, and gray, especially today. But the good news is that this is our communal effort as believers. No matter what happens in the outside world, we as believers, as brothers and sisters, can lean on each other for help. So it's a beautiful thing to be able to do that, even more so a blessing. So if you take away one thing today, learn to lean on your brothers and sisters. We have a network outside of the network where we can lean on each other. 
And in this day and age, it's taken for granted, but it's such, such a blessing. If you were poor, disaffected, disenfranchised, which was all for intents and purposes, most of the people in the Roman Empire, because we have an elite system, the have versus the have-nots, the people at the top and everybody else. Now, one of the ideas that appeals to Christian believers was that the meek would inherit the earth. To the Christian, that makes sense. But to the Romans, it sounded ridiculous. The Romans believed this in survival of the fittest. Polar opposites, to say the least. You can see, though, now how these two philosophies cannot coexist with each other. How one seems to want to smoke out the other, which is pretty much what we're talking about, and which is pretty much what happens when you believe in survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. By definition, you must destroy the other one. The Roman philosophy cannot coexist or live with the Christian philosophy. At the same time, Ignatius' preachers of equality could turn the power structure of Rome on its head. Even if it was going to cost him his life, it is this philosophy that would make the Roman philosophy destroy itself. So here's the formula. The Romans try to kill, but the Christians resort to love. This love, as we shall see, makes Rome incapable and falls apart. Point number two, Christian martyrdom defined. As we have read, Ignatius chooses to go to Rome and suffer. Nothing in his letters indicate him looking for a way out. He knows that there is a tremendous power in martyrdom. Despite the fact that there were plans by other Christians to save him, he denied that, he stopped it. And going to Rome and dying means the gospel will be preached. So he could have been saved, but he knows that the greater message is to go and die in Rome. Why? To preach the gospel. The idea of martyrdom, the Christians embraced. And it started with Christ our Lord. He was the first. All martyrs are tributes and echoes of, him, of Christ himself. All martyrs wish to do what Christ did on the cross. In their death, they wish to honor him. Now, Ignatian's journey means two things. Spread the gospel while you are alive with your mouth and your deeds and spread the gospel in your death if God, God chooses this way. Point number 13. The spectacle that is Rome. So, after three months, Ignatius arrives in Rome. When he does arrive, what does he see? What sort of things were happening in the city around him? Well, whatever he heard, whatever debaucheries, whatever evil he might have heard about is true, and he sees it with his own eyes. The emperor invests a lot of money in infrastructure, such as the creation of aqueducts, roads, public statues. And we haven't even talked about the Colosseum yet. Rome could be considered the American dream of the ancient world. They believed it. They, were the, they believed they were the light of the world. Trajan, through his rule, perfected that dream. He believed it, and he had the people believe it as well. Now, Emperor Trajan's conquest met a massive delivery of slaves and the spoils of war. Think about it. Conquer, take slaves. New money, new buildings, new bathhouses, temples, games at the Colosseum. If you sought martyrdom, this very public spectacle at the Colosseum, what a better place than there in front of 50,000 people. 
good for the Romans, but even better for the Christians if they're, if they're spreading the gospel. Point number 14, the Roman games. So Ignatius arrives, and this is what he sees. The games consist of beast hunts in the morning and public executions in the afternoon. Roman citizens were driven by class. The more money influence you had, the quicker the death. If lower class, you were killed fairly brutally. The most popular with the Roman crowd was Damatio ad bestias. It is a Latin term, and it means condemned to the wild beasts. It is as brutal as it sounds. This is where we get the term thrown to the lions, although metaphorical today, in context meant literal in the ancient world. The execution of wild beasts was almost as, Rome, as old as Rome itself. This practice goes back to the 2nd century B.C. Originally, it was a military punishment for desertion. So if you left the army, you were thrown to the beasts. By the early 1st century, its use was widespread. Now, if you're going to put in picture three, please. Mosaics all over the empire show this act happening. Now, if you look at this, this is all over. This faded. Here is other people that are being attacked by the wild animals. And as we can see, this is what they saw. This is what they've had part of the history for thousands of years. And it was all over. And you could see it and realize it was such a part of their culture. Now, point number 15, Roman psychology. Being fed to the beast is a horrific way to, to die, reserved for extreme criminals. The purpose of this punishment is humiliating and a nightmare coming true. And another example is crucifixion, which we know well of. If you rebelled against the Roman laws, you would meet a vengeance unlike any other. When we talk about the great infrastructure that Rome built, be it roads or monuments, we have to remember that it was by the sword. It was fear. It was the blood of the enemies that kept it under control. And for the normal Roman attendee of the Colosseum, it's really hard to describe as to how a human being can sit there and watch such an atrocity. Part of the reason could be is that the people watching the horror compartmentalized the victims as subhuman because they were a threat to Roman society. Perhaps they thought this was a human garbage that the state could get rid of. This reminds me when our Lord was tried and executed. In Matthew 21, verse 9, then the multitudes who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This also reminds me of the same people who said Hosanna in the highest also said Matthew 27, verses 15 to 26. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to reach to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who was called the Messiah? Pilate asked, and they all answered, crucify him. So the same people who praised Christ were probably the same people who sentenced him to death about a week later. Now, point number 16, the power of martyrdom. So this is all grim stuff. It's not pleasant. 
but there's good news. Now, from the Roman perspective, Ignatius is going to get exactly what he deserves at the Colosseum. But in the reality, they're giving him a platform and an audience. You hear this all the time today. Don't give these people a platform. The reason is because the opposition who says not to give these people a platform, they know the power of the platform. And from the Christian perspective, this platform serves Christ in the end. The spreading of the gospel is the intent. This would also be a death blow to the empire, but they don't know it yet. But it's coming. The Romans in attendance are drunk with wine and the sheer brilliance of the games. Remember the Roman psychology. They cannot see what is to come. Ignatius knows the bigger the platform, the more people will see it. The phenomena of Christian martyrdom is a massive enigma, and the Roman mind cannot understand it just as they cannot set the joy, see the joy of the faces of the martyrs in the amphitheater as they're being executed. This in itself will confuse the emperor. He wants to see a battle between man and beast, which is always was the intent. Put this, this together, let them fight and see what happens. Instead, he is an eyewitness to the martyrs willingly meeting their death. Willingly is the key word to submit to meet their Lord on full display. The Roman view of death was bleak, a shadowy underworld. The Romans did not want to die because there was nothing for them. This could be one of the reasons why the Greco-Roman world pursued honor, glory, a name for themselves, and even a beautiful death. After this life, for them, there was no more. In his letters, Ignatius describes what he will face. And this is where it gets intense, everyone. So, if you're squeamish, hold your ears. May I have the pleasure of the wild beast to be prepared for me. Now, this is Ignatius talking. I will even coax them to devour me quickly, not as they have done with some who they were too timid to touch. And if when I am willing and ready and they are not, I will force them. Bear with me. I know what is best for me. Now at last, I am beginning to be a disciple. May nothing visible or invisible envy me, so that I may reach Jesus Christ. Fire and cross and battles with wild beasts, mutilation, mangling, the wrenching of bones, the hacking of limbs, the crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, let them come upon me, only let me reach Jesus Christ. And this is Ignatius' letters to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. The language, to say the least, is strong and severe. A real sense of wanting to die, wanting to suffer. He knows that dying as a martyr is going to be far more to spreading the gospel than him just preaching alone. So when standing there, accepting his fate willingly, the only audience will ask, what does he believe? And once they find out, Christianity will spread like wildfire. In essence, Ignatius' violent and torturous death is what helped spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. God used him mightily to that end. The Romans plan to make an example of Ignatius, but it backfires. There are many stories of Christians being thrown to the lions, and instead of killing them, the lions lay at their feet. In this case, Ignatius was not spared. The historical records indicate he was killed by the lion. 
With his death, Ignatius is able to subvert the symbolism of the Colosseum, the pagan symbolism, if you will. He is able to replace it with the persistence of the Christians who is supposed to be the victim in the Roman games, but the victor in the long run. So you put picture four up, please. And I actually want to keep this up for a little while because it's so important. If you look at this, this picture literally says a thousand words. You have the Colosseum, the symbol of death and destruction and evil, all sets of the way, and paganism, and all that nonsense. But the cross of Christ, right here in front of it, conquering it all. And that is now the legacy of, of the Colosseum. With all of its, its uh, history and all the fascinating things you can learn about it historically, in the end, it's been reduced to rubble. And what stands in its place is the cross of Christ. And that's what matters. Ignatius is not the first martyr. He's an example of a long line of Christian martyrs. The power of these kind of devotions convinced many people to convert to Christianity, and that's what's important. What is a perfect example of how right the faith is? Is that someone is willing to die for it. So, in conclusion, at the time that Ignatius dies, no one expected Christianity to become what it is today. In the moment of his death, it would seem as though he was defeated. The fact is, the victory was his and the glory belongs to the Lord. It's the Christian belief system that would prevail in the long run. Little by little, these figures like Ignatius were the, were the pieces that would slowly engulf the empire. Shortly after the time of Ignatius, there are estimated to be 40,000 Christians in the empire. 150 years later, there were 6 million. The future Roman and Byzantine emperor Constantine converts to Christianity in 312 AD. This is a whole other story in itself, but it marks a remarkable turn of an underground faith being persecuted and then going mainstream. Now, secular sources report that Ignatius was a man who died for what he believed in. And this is in fact true. He did die for what he believed in. But there is a deeper issue here at play, a deeper lesson. All men die for what they believe in, from the secular to the religious. However, I cannot help but to think his cause was far more greater. Ignatius accepted his fate for two reasons. One, to spread the gospel like wildfire so that the people will believe. From the people in the Colosseum and all over the world. Two, to glorify Christ, to show ultimate allegiance to the God-man, the only one who can save. If this isn't true, then he just died like everyone else. But I cannot believe that. I cannot believe that Ignatius was just a man who died for his personal convictions. I simply cannot believe it was a choice by a man in a hopeless, purposeless, godless universe akin to what the Romans believe. With that, I will leave you with a scripture that I feel is strong and it keeps me going. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson today, albeit intense, but you make all things good. Your word will not be stopped. The gates of hell will not prevail. 
we will always move forward preaching the name of Christ, preaching the gospel, whether the outside world likes it or not, and it can't be stopped. I pray for courage and conviction for everyone involved that hears this message to be able to go forward and to preach. And in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.